and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer and this is my pre-budget podcast where we hear from entrepreneur slash celebrity chef who hates being called a celebrity chef, but he is a great chef and he is a TV celebrity and so therefore he, I guess he is a celebrity chef. His name is Luke Mangum. We discuss what governments can do to help get people back to the CBDs of the country and into their restaurants and cafes, which have been doing it very tough in a world where working from home has become a defence tactic against the coronavirus. Uh, we then catch up with the president of the Peak Business Lobby Group of Australia, the Business Council of Australia. That man is the former CEO of MYOB, Tim Reid, and he tells us what business wants to hear from Treasurer Josh Frydenberg next week on in the budget. Now, how does an investment allowance where you can claim more than you spend sound. Now, that's the kind of allowance that encourage investors into a film that was expected to be a dud and a bomb called Mad Max. The country could do with some great export products like Mad Max going forward. And finally, we catch up with the CEO of Archer Materials, which is a company that once searched for minerals, but now is mining for deep tech and a chip to power quantum computing. That's the pot of gold that Dr. Mohammed Chalkare is looking for. That's the show. Without any further ado, let's cross and catch up with Luke Mangan. Well, at a time when the hospitality sector, particularly in our major CBD areas, are under enormous pressure because of the coronavirus, you know, leading chefs and entrepreneurs like Luke Mangan and others are out, actually out there asking for governments to try and think outside the square and come up with something that could help these really important areas of the economy. Luke, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Pete. All right, Luke, let's start off with some basic questions so people understand the, the magnitude of the problems. What did your business look like before the coronavirus? Uh, we were in pretty good shape. You know, we were doing cruise ships, airlines, restaurants, restaurants in hotels. Uh, so we were in a good spot. But obviously, I hit the trifecta there uh, with cruise ships, airlines and uh, restaurants in hotels, etc. So we're about 95% down. Yeah, that's, that is absolutely huge. And what chunk of your business was in the CBD, either of Sydney or any other, other city, and how have they been affected? Well, we've got Glass Restaurant in the Sydney Hilton. Uh, we were a seven-day-a-week operation, 10 mil a year turnover. Um, and now we're back to just doing a Friday lunch, Friday dinner, and Saturday night. Now, the CBD, as you probably know, is still pretty quiet. Although I must admit, in the last few days, it's picked up. I guess the sun's shining, uh, the zero uh, counts with, with uh, COVID coming up, which is great. So uh, the lunch trade on a Friday is is okay. You know, where we used to do about 150, 160 for lunch, we're probably doing about 85, 90. Mm. And that's with, you know, uh, the four, four by square metre rule. Okay, so how important were overseas tourists to your, your Sydney CBD business? Well, very much. I mean, the hotel was full with hotel guests, yeah. 600 rooms above, uh, even coming from interstate as well. Now, obviously, that's all blocked off with Victoria and Queensland, etc. No international travel there. So, look, the, the, the hotel was about 20% of our uh, market share coming in through the hotel that we know of that was recorded. Um, and the rest was business lunches uh, and things like that and locals. Yeah, so I'm going to ask that question. You, you, you've talked about the, you know, the interstate type people go, go, staying in the hotel using your restaurant. But business yeah. people, you know, business people who are in the CBD of Sydney, 
they're, they're the people who are really missing in action as well, aren't they? Certainly are. Look, if you look at even the government, state government, they've got about 10% of their workers back in the office. Mm. Uh, Citibank, 20%. You know, so we've got real concerns there. Mm. And I think uh, once they start coming back in, um, you know, things aren't going to change. How have you pivoted in your own business to cope with this, this period? Well, I mean, there's not a lot we could do. You've probably seen and heard a lot of restaurants doing takeout and things like that. We, we, we did that later on, uh, but we didn't want to compromise on the quality of our food and serve restaurant food in takeaway containers and have it served cold and things like that. So we stuck with uh, frozen sort of pies, reheat meals that were could be reheated and recooked. So And that went quite well, but it's certainly a business that cannot be, uh, you can't sustain, I think. Yeah. All right, so I was pleased to hear that the Sydney Council and the state government got together with a, a bunch of people like yourself, Neil Perry, Justin Hems, and the, what came out of that, those discussions? Well, that was the Sydney summer, the summer summit. Yeah. About two weeks ago, I had lunch with uh, uh, Dominic Perrottet in Sydney, and we spoke about things like FBT and payroll tax and things like that to you know, to help struggling businesses, not only in the city, but the small cafes and wine bars in, in, around the country. Uh, and he was very positive and I was quite pleased uh, with with his comments and what he may take to, to the federal government. Yeah. Um, so, so out of that summit came lots of things. As you know, there's all these red tapes with cafes. I'm saying, let's open the city up. Let's get the arts back out there. Let cafes, wine bars, restaurants, put tables and chairs in the streets in a safe environment obviously law-abiding, but there's all this red tape, Pete, where it can take up to two to three months to get your application through. There's a charge per table, there's a charge per uh, chair, which is absolutely ridiculous. And all these small businesses need all the help they can get now because I tell you, when JobKeeper finishes, JobSeeker finishes, uh, when, when, when rent relief comes in, mortgage relief is finished, there's going to be a few problems. Okay, so what has been the um, reaction from people like Clover Moore? Because uh, the, the, the Sydney City Council would be responsible for tables and chairs on streets, I presume, but maybe I'm wrong. No, no, you're right. But Dominic Perrottet was in that meeting mm. with Clover as well. We all got together around the table and we spoke about it. Now, the good thing here is government are working with councils mm. and it's very interesting. Uh, Minister Dominello, who I've met uh, several times, is very much behind these ideas and these plans. And in the meetings I've been in, he's been pushing very hard to make this happen. And I think we'll have an announcement in the next two weeks of what will happen. Okay, so what about the, the really um, thorny subject for Perrottet, the, the, uh, the New South Wales Treasurer, around uh, giving you a holiday from payroll tax? It is 30% of his revenue. Mm. Well, it's interesting. It was brought up at our meeting. Uh, it was dodged a bit to federal government. Mm. But I noticed last night in an interview I was doing with the Prime Minister that he dodged it back to state government. So it, it's quite interesting how it gets thrown around. Yeah. Um, uh, payroll tax and FBT, they're certainly on our radar. These will help. And I'm, I'm not sure if we just focus it on small business in restaurants, wine bars and cafes and, 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 and just in the CBD mm. or something like that to help them get over this, this hump and, and waiting until people get back into the city. I think it's on their agenda. I think payroll tax needs to be done because if they want, as the Prime Minister keeps saying, jobs, 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 um, 
well let us help you mm. so help us to help you and re get rid of that abolish payroll tax yes as you say it is 30 percent of revenue but as restaurants and the hospitality business have done since march they've pivoted so let's see the government pivot a bit more and try and get some revenue elsewhere. Yeah, certainly I can see an, a, a solid argument for giving a payroll tax holiday uh, for a period of time until the economy gets back to normal. And secondly, um, doing it for certain regions. And, and the region is CBD in this case. Some areas won't, won't need any help on payroll tax, but certainly we know the CBD does. What about the idea that you know, FBT, for example, is only 1% of the federal government's revenue? Amazing. And did the Prime Minister give you a, 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 an idea that he was at least considering it? Well, his comments were, uh, you know, I think the general public will see uh, people going out for boozy lunches and long lunches again. And he sort of brushed it off, yeah. which is quite strange. My point with all that is, listen, we want people back out for yeah. lunch, having long lunches, doing deals over wine, good food, celebrating uh, what this great city and alone this great country has to offer with great chefs and great food. Mm. What, what do you think about the idea of vouchers? Tasmania tried it. Um, only allocated 7.5 million for people to go touring within the, the state of Tasmania. Uh, $100 a night for accommodation, a one-off night, $50 for an experience, and it sold out in 40 minutes. Yeah, incredible. And, uh, and it was done in the UK as well, in, in back a while ago, mm. uh, to give $50 vouchers to go into a restaurant. And we know, as restaurateurs and chefs, that if someone's coming in with a free voucher of 50 bucks a head or something, we know they're obviously going to probably spend 75 bucks mm. or even 100 bucks a head. So that's really going to generate revenue. And just remember, that revenue generates revenue for the government, mm. with GST. Exactly right. So. What's your, what's your feeling, Luke? Um, I know you, you told me that Clover Moore said something would be, will happen by November. When, when do you think you actually hear about what might go on in November? I think we've got, uh, in the next two weeks, we're going to hear something from uh, Minister Dominello, who's been behind this. In about two weeks, we're going to hear something about outside dining. Mm. Payroll tax and FBT, uh, we're obviously here in the budget, mm. uh, what comes out of that. And, and I really think the amount of noise we've been making since March uh, that something will happen. Um, look, Clovermore is all about opening the city up, which is great, but what they've got to do is just cut this red tape. Mm, exactly right. Luke uh, Mangan, um, and I, I should actually say one thing. You also have opened up another restaurant outside the CBD. How is that doing compared to your, your salt? Look, very much uh, well. We're in the suburbs, Waterloo, Luke's Kitchen. So we're doing three nights a week where we used to do seven nights a week. Um, business is good. And I think that's where people are sort of looking at, eating in the suburbs, keeping local. And that's great. And I think if all Australians can do that, and especially, you know, when Victoria opens up, uh, we, we, you know, I really feel for what's happening down there in Victoria within our hospitality business. Yeah. Look, you know, the, what, what, he's, what he's doing down there is telling them they can only eat outside. I mean, seriously, with that climate, uh, not great. Yeah, that's right. Particularly when you realise you get four seasons in one day in Melbourne. That's very, very hard. Luke Mangan, thanks for joining us and good luck. We'll keep following up. Thanks very much, Pete.
And that was Luke Mangan's celebrity chef, who I'm not supposed to call a celebrity chef. Sorry, Luke. But this is a time when we actually do an ad and we generally advertise what we do here at Switzer. We have the Switzer Report. Um, it's, there's a 21-day free trial. The Switzer Report gives you insights into the companies that you might want to invest in. And uh, we've been doing really well. Some great ones, Tyro, uh, Zip, uh, and a number of other companies have done very, very well in recent times actually for a long time that's why it's been going for about six or seven years so if you want to have access to it and just test it out uh, go to switzerreport.com.au and we'll give you a 21 day free trial well at a time when business is being unbelievably challenged by the coronavirus the business council of australia has sketched a road to recovery and i'm talking to the president of the BCA, Tim Reid. Thanks for joining us, Tim. Peter, great to be with you. Tim, I, I want to run through what you guys see as being, you know, the, the key recommendations to, to maximise our recovery. But I'd like to just t- tap into your crystal ball because I know you'd have a view on many of these things. Um, and, and, and my view is uh, if we want to be supersonically optimistic, um, we, we really do need to have um, our fingers crossed on a vaccine. What's your view on that? Yeah, look, I, th- there's no doubt that having a vaccine would go a long, long way. Mm. Because I think even if we get to the point where um, community to community transmission is very low, mm. um, even if we get to the point where state borders open up, it's very difficult to see international borders opening up um, without a vaccine or at least without, in any meaningful way, you know, without um, the quarantining processes and so on. Um, and, and I think that we've got an issue with confidence. And so for people to be confident to go out there and spend and create that economic activity, um, a vaccine would go a long, long way. So uh, let's touch wood that some of the earlier forecasts of actually you know, getting through those stage three trials by the end of this year and having a vaccine next year hold true. Mm. And, and I think it would go a long way to underpin confidence, Peter. Yep. Uh, open borders within Australia. Um, I'm not going to get you to be political, but uh, how important is it for the growth potential of 2021? It's very important. Um, and let me say that again, mm. it's very important. Yeah. So, look, there's two things there with the borders. Uh, Firstly, uh, right now, there is no coordinated process. So when a border closes, when it opens, um, the um, the special um, certificates to be able to cross borders, they're all different, they're all different rules. And that makes it really, really difficult if you're running a national supply chain and most industries run on national supply chains. So... Um, that would be a first starting point. Let's have a standard set of regulations and a standard set of of policies around the administration of border um, closures and and border crosses. Um, But then the second is by opening up, what we'll find is, you know, there's situations where there's Victorians who would normally be working in New South Wales at this point of year, you know, agricultural workers and so on. Well, they can't get there to do that work. Um, they can't find other people locally to do that work, so the work's not getting done. Um, so there are all these circumstances where um, it would help drive the economy. Travel, tourism, hospitality, those sorts of industries have been decimated. Mm. And while, frankly, a lot of us are travelling 
here this year, you know, holidaying here this year and staying within our state, um, it will absolutely help um, and, and help drive more activity once those borders are open. Okay. Um, Australia's battle with China at the moment, does it worry the Business Council a bit? It does. Um, you know, close to 50% of our exports go to China uh, by value. Um, there is China's a growing economy. Um, it's increasing its you know, economic footprint. And so we need to be thinking about diversifying that. Um, but there is, you know, Australian growth has been underpinned by a few factors over recent decades. Uh, one, population growth, and without immigration, that's looking at risk. Mm. Um, and, and two, China, you know, th those two would be right at the top of, of the list. Uh, so look, we understand and appreciate the um, perspective that, that as a nation we don't want to um, sell our values out um, because of a trading partner, um, and and we don't. You know, uh, I, I think we have to stand up for what we believe in, uh, but we do believe that there is a way to um, walk a line where we recognise and respect China for who they are where we acknowledge the differences, um, but with a degree of pragmatism, continue to align and work towards the common goals that we're able to, um, to achieve. And, and so it does worry us as we start to see the sort of um, the flaring up of languages and, and, and so on. Uh, we do note that China's doing this with every Western nation. So it's not singling out Australia. If you look at the way they're engaging with the UK, with the US, with Canada, et cetera, um, it, it's not an anti-Australian in that sense, um, but it does worry us that the relationship is deteriorating. Mm. This is an easy one, Tim, and because you're no longer the CEO of a uh, of a publicly listed company, you might even answer this question. Um, does the BCA hope that uh, Donald Trump wins or loses the US election? Oh, look, we don't we don't take formal positions on um, on politics in our country or on politics in other countries. Um, you know, we would completely respect the right of American voters. All right, but um, go, okay, go. trade wars, would you prefer, the Business Council of Australia prefer less trade wars going forward? The BCA would prefer less trade wars, wars going forward, absolutely. Uh, but, but we also recognise that everyone's got to play by the rule of law. Yep. And so we don't want trade wars, but you can't have one party, um, you know, blatantly taking advantage of others. So, you know, there, there has to be a balance there. Yeah. Um, what is the um, BCA expecting for growth in 2021 for Australia? I know it's a guess, but what's the best guess for BCA? Yeah, so look, again, we don't have um, official economic forecasts, but if I go back and think about the conversations that we've had in our economics um, committee and that our um, chief economist has put out there, you know, I, I think we're... Um, hoping for a rebound in the order of sort of 6% in line with the OECD expectations. Mm. Uh, we think that that's very achievable. Uh, we think if we can get some policies that really reinforce investment and, you know, in our budget submission, we call for an investment allowance um, to really um, leverage the balance sheets of, um, of private companies, um, but, you know, also encouraging government to leverage their balance sheet then we might be able to do a bit better than that. You know, um, sort of seven or eight would be unbelievably good, um, but, um, but, but we're, we're 
probably more in line with the OECD forecasts. Mm. Has the Victorian lockdown um, made the fall in growth in 2020 a lot worse than was expected? But uh, it, Yeah, it's made it materially worse. Mm. Um, there, there is no doubt. Um, and when you have a look across multiple factors, you can see um, metrics like the number of job advertisements that are out there, um, you can you can even see economic activity, consumer spending, etc. Where in Western Australia and the Northern Territory, um, there's almost a full recovery. Uh, where in South Australia and Queensland, you know they're year on year um, sort of pushing up to where they were. New South Wales trending positively. You know, sixty percent of jobs lost in New South Wales have been regained, um, and Victoria that number is at twenty percent. And so Victoria is a quarter of the country. Um, you know, as someone who by birth was a Victorian, mm. um, you know, it's very near and dear to my heart. Um, and, you know, it has a huge impact on the nation. So it, it's, it's absolutely been um, a noticeable drag on FY20 GDP yeah. numbers. Okay. So if you had the power to influence Josh Frydenberg and Scott Morrison, what are the key recommendations, the big recommendations that you want to see come through in the budget? Yeah, so we had four real themes that we were hoping to come through. Number one, um, sort of reopen the economy. Number two, transition from emergency funding to sustainable demand. Number three, uh, really laying the foundations uh, for the future of our community and, and our economy. And number four, making sure that we don't leave anyone behind. So if I go through those, opening up is all about what we talked about earlier. It's about the borders. It's about driving um, confidence for people to get out there um, and, and, and engage in economic activity again. Um, it, it is about um, the, um, the, the regulation around the borders and so on. Number two, um, transitioning from the emergency funding to sustainable demand. Um, we agree with the government in winding back the JobKeeper and JobSeeker programs, but have really encouraged them to bring forward um, the Phase 2 and Phase 3 income tax cuts mm. uh, because we believe that that will give people um, money in their pockets and, and that that will fire up um, domestic demand. Uh, laying the foundations for the future, um, really this is about driving investment um, it's about driving private investment and public investment. And so the biggest single thing that we called for was an investment allowance, and that effectively allows companies to tax deduct more than 100% of the cost of the assets, and they can be physical assets or intangible assets that they're investing in. Uh, we called particularly for government investment in digital. Uh, we called um, significantly for um, um, the government investing in um, the skills of the future, which also sort of feeds into that theme about not leaving anyone behind. Um, investing in energy, in a new energy future and in a clean energy future. Um, so a whole lot there about sort of investing for the future. Um, and then in terms of not leaving anyone behind, uh, we have called for a permanent increase in the rate of job seeker. Uh, and um, we, we've called for specific investment in regional Australia. Um, and in, as I said earlier, skills. Mm. So, you know, the, the really specific pr proposals are around each of those areas. Has, has anyone come up with a range of really outside the square 
um, recommendations that you guys have said, oh, no, they'll, they'll never buy it. You know, like, for example, the hospitality sector in, in Sydney um, is, is um, you know, asking for, you know, a suspension of uh, fringe benefit tax um, uh, on entertainment for a year. Um, they're asking the state governments to maybe give them a payroll tax holiday. Have these suggestions been, you know, canvassed at BCA and you've said, oh, great ideas, but I don't think the government will buy it? Absolutely. And, and in fact, on one of those, we lobbied quite hard for um, payroll tax um, to be a payroll tax holiday. Mm. And we've asked for that to be extended because we do think that's an important one. I mean, payroll tax is just a tax on creating a job, yeah. right? And, um, right now we need jobs. Hmm. So it seems silly to tax them. So um, so we've absolutely called for that one. Um, look, we've had we had conversations about a jobs guarantee, about the federal government funding local councils to create jobs so that everyone can have a job yeah. in local communities. I think it would have cost about 2.3% of GDP, which is more than we spend in, on defence mm. in its entirety as a budget. And mm. So we looked at that one and thought right now, given the economic um, challenge that the nation's facing, that's going to be almost impossible for a government to bite off on. Um, so that was one that we sort of really gave due process to, but in the end came back and said, just very difficult to see it working. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your history with uh, MYOB as CEO, many times uh, you've talked about, and I've talked about with you, you know, getting rid of red tape. If I hear another government tell me they're going to get rid of red tape, I'm I'm going to use the the full expression of BS. What do you think? Do you think we'll ever see any serious reduction in red tape? Look, this government at this moment in time has done more than any other I've seen. Right. So to give them credit, um, changes to the Corporations Act, um, protections for um, directors around trading insolvent because of the, you know, great economic uncertainty. Mm. Uh, so th they have done a bit. Um, they've removed paper from lots of um, components of the Corporations Act and allowed no, more to be done digitally. Uh, I, I once heard uh, a um, Minister for Small Business um, talk to me quite honestly, at, and, and it was a public forum, um, say, let's face it, governments have been talking about removing red tape forever. Regulation only goes in one direction and it only ever has. So what we need to do is to leverage technology so that the impact of regulation is less and less each year. And, you know, the government um, made some recent announcements um, around digital investment and, you know, part of that was about infrastructure in NBN, part of it was in 5G. But part of it was in this concept of um, completing their vision of a single business register where it takes 15 minutes to establish a company um, because all of the registers are there in one place. Um, and I do think that there is great potential for the government. You know, the, Scott Morrison came out and said that he wants Australia to be a leading five digital nation by 2030. Um, and I'm part of an um, expert working group working with um, his office on what that means and how to get there. And I do think a big part of it is not necessarily getting rid of all of this regulation because, to your point, that seems highly unlikely, but just making it an incredibly streamlined and easy process to be able to deal with government. Okay. 
Well, mate, is there anything else you'd like to say um, as a plea before the budget uh, that the BCA would like? Uh, look, look I, I think we've put it all there in our document. Above all else, we think this has to be a budget to drive jobs. Uh, and we think jobs will be driven by driving private investment. Uh, that investment will drive productivity. It'll build the future in, in terms of the electricity assets we want, the infrastructure we want, in terms of the digital assets that we want. Um, so that would be our big, big plea is to put that investment allowance in there um, to unlock the balance sheet of more Australian companies. Number two would be around skills and really making sure that as um, some jobs go away and some will, um, that people have easy, um, quick and frankly free access to retraining um, so that then they can get the skills that they need to be competitive in the workplace of tomorrow. Um, and so if it had to be just a couple of things, it'd be those, Peter. Okay. Tim, thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure. Hey, Peter. Hi, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that women retire with 47% less superannuation than men? Yeah, I did, Claire, because for something like 30 years, I've been trying to get women to be real and men to be really educated about their super. And I think it's been terrible to think that women's superannuation is so low. Exactly. But did you also know that one in two women see investment industry communications as being complicated? A large number feel intimidated, and about one in five find them tailored to men. Yeah. I haven't seen that that data, mm. um, but I'm not surprised. I think a lot of men get intimidated by by money and super and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I have learned over the years is that when women get really interested, they're better at managing money than men. Exactly. Oh, I see how quickly you came in on that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what we're aiming to do with Tilly Money. Yep. So Tilly Money is a place to come and learn about money, how to understand it, harness it, and importantly, how to grow it. So we're trying to help women achieve their financial independence by removing any disparity in the accessibility of financial knowledge. So Peter, visit tillymoney.com.au where you can read our articles, sign up to the newsletter, or listen to the podcast. Isn't it amazing that for someone like me, who my whole life I've been inspired by my wife Maureen Jordan that mm. um, she's come up with an idea like Tilly. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> well my next guest on the program is Dr. Muhammad Chalkir. Now this is a very interesting story. He's the CEO of Archer Explorations, formerly Archer Materials. But I don't think really we're looking for resources, but maybe I'm wrong. Mohammed, welcome, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. All right, so you know, you kind of confused me a little bit because Archer used to be in the mining space, but it's not in the mining space now, is it? No, uh, we. You're right. We have gone through a transition, and last year we uh, voted to change our name from Archer Exploration to Archer Materials. Uh, in order to better reflect our activities as we focus on the development of our deep tech. Okay, so th there is a history of lots of mining companies saying, oh, look, we've had a gutful of searching for, for minerals and whatever. Let's do something else. There's, a, there's actually a very good company called McPherson. was exactly like that. It's been doing well in sort of like the, the food and, and uh, healthcare space, been doing very well. So 
What was it? Was it easy to say to the to the board or for the board to decide? Oh, we're sick of this. Let's let's do this instead. Well, I think you you hit the nail on the head there. That there are many companies that evolve over time. Uh, many listed companies that evolve over time and and try and capture value and different aspects of uh, the life cycle of the industry that they're in. Mm. Uh, for Archer, we we really looked forward in in thinking and saying. Well, where do we capture value along the materials life cycle? Exploration comes early, but we have this wealth of knowledge and infrastructure and world-class expertise in Australia that we can tap into uh, in order to generate uh, value for our shareholders and, and ultimately growth. Um, so, I mean, for us, it wasn't easy. Absolutely not. Uh, when you come in uh, to a, co a company and, and set a strategy which, which could take years, which has taken years, uh, for us to get to this point, um, it, it was difficult to convince uh, shareholders, but I think in the end, uh, we've had wonderful support from our shareholders moving forward, mm. and, and we've enjoyed that confidence and trust. Yeah, in many ways, it's about, okay, we have a company, and that company could earn this amount of money in this space, but we could earn a lot more in this space. Do you want to change spaces? That's what it gets down to, doesn't it? Yes. So, you know, ultimately we're looking at the scale of opportunity here and, and you have to be realistic and pragmatic about um, some of the external forces that are at play. But also, like I said, what do you have at hand and, and how can you best uh, utilize and, and really work within your resource entitlements? And, and I think here in Australia, we're quite privileged and lucky to be, to be able to, uh, you know, span across the spectrum of value. And, you know, the board, considered the strategy uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago now, well before there was a you know, real move in the tech space and, and they made a bold move to, to take that on. And I think it's been quite positive as a result. Okay, so for people who don't know what we're talking about, mm. what did Archer do before and what is it doing exactly now? So Archer was listed in 2007 on the ASX and they were a junior mining company, junior, a junior mineral exploration company. So your, your straight exploration, um, you know, holding mineral tenements and undergoing exploration. So that was a known and there's many companies out there that do this kind of uh, work and this kind of business. Uh, what we do now is um, we, we develop innovative deep tech. And we've brought those assets in uh, over the last two and a half years. We've hired the right people. We've uh, garnered that uh, access to world-class infrastructure. And uh, we're well and truly on the way to developing some, some really breakthrough technologies. Okay. Now, you say deep tech, but is it deep tech applicable to the mining slash material space? Uh, it, it's mutually exclu exclusive. I, I would say we we don't necessarily need to say that uh, the minerals that we look for will end up being used in the technologies that we're building. Uh, on the contrary, we, we can make the materials that we're using to build these very sophisticated uh, technologies. So there is some overlap, but uh, for all intensive purposes, they are mutually exclusive. Give us an example of something that you guys are working on right now. So we are working on building a quantum computing processor chip. Uh, so this is a world, world first uh, with, uh, with the technology and materials that we are using. And, and this is something that's quite exciting for us. And we're doing that right here in Australia, in Sydney. Mm. So, of course, you've got to understand 
there are normal people listening to this, uh, Mohammed. Mm. What is a, comp a quantum computing chip? Well, it really represents the, the next generation of powerful computing. Uh, in, in terms of when we look at the, the global context of computing, you know, look at your laptops, your phones, there's this ever increasing demand by, by consumers, by you and I, mm. right, for, for more powerful phones, more powerful laptops, more powerful things that you can uh, get your hands on. Yeah. Uh, and, and the next stage and next generation of this uh, where, where we're seeing a paradigm shift towards is quantum computing. Mm. And, and so for, for once again, for the normal people, what does qu quantum computing mean? Well, it's a fundamentally different kind of computing. Uh, it really does go down into the nitty-gritty physics of how the, the computing uh, processes information. Mm. And, and we're looking to you know, mimic the way information is processed ultimately by nature. Mm. And, and so this opens up a massive door of opportunity to, to build industries, Right. entire industries. We're not just saying to people, here's an opportunity to take an off-the-shelf product and make it better. It's not what we're about. This is why it's deep tech. This kind of innovation goes on for generations. It has the potential to build industries and also drive economies. And we're very fortunate to be part of this. When you talk about deep tech, does it mean that it might take, like, like with biotech, it might take a long time to actually get to where you want to be, to make lots of money, to be uh, a target from a big company like Intel or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's not shallow tech, right? Um, and, and there is a value model associated with uh, deep tech. Uh, we haven't just sprung up overnight. Uh, like I said, the strategy at Archer has taken two to three years, but the work on this quantum processor has taken over seven years to get to where we are. We did sign a collaboration agreement with IBM earlier in the year. Um, and, and we are very, very happy to be part of this global economy and ecosystem uh, amongst the world's very best in quantum computing. Mm. What is the one big innovation you'd like to see in your lifetime? Wow, that's a really good question. Uh, I, one Innovation I would like to see would be one that can help make a positive impact on the lives of, of millions of people and starting right here at home in Australia. And I'm not just saying that because I'm trying to be nationalistic, but I think we have such a wonderful suite of technologies that, you know, Archer is working on and, and many other uh, researchers and, and brilliant scientists in our country are developing. So uh, anywhere from quantum computing to, to you know, biosensing on chips, uh, you know, you can take your pick, but ultimately having that positive impact on our society. Okay. So when someone does a pitch to um, a shareholder about mm -hmm. a company, it's, mm -hmm. it's sometimes reasonably easy because there's a very clearly defined product, there's a clearly defined market, and you can show there's a gap in the market where you're going to fill, and as a consequence, you can see the revenue rising, and you can expect that the profit's going to be there, and the share price is going to go up. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you say when you present to a, a crowd of people who are potential either investors on a major scale or shareholders on a smaller scale? I think we'll get there. 
And the important thing to note is that we're a very early stage of development and growth. Mm. And ultimately, we will be working to unify and simplify our commercialization model. And, and once we get to a point where we do have products that we can market and push uh, into uh, a, a supply chain, that will become a lot easier. Uh, but that also links into the stage of development we are at. Okay. We are early stage and we are looking to grow. We have a growth mindset, but there's also value to be had along the way because in deep tech, the largest curve for value lies in the development of the technology. So you're saying that along the way, there can, there can be eureka moments where something that is needed for you to produce your end goal product actually is very useful for lots of other uh, uh, products and businesses out there and that can provide value. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, when, we, when we look at what we're doing and what we're building, uh, we're doing a one of a kind, right? A, a world first uh, opportunity for us to, to really contribute on the global scale. Uh, and at this early stage, once we put all the nuts and bolts together, um, we would be in a position to have that unified um, and very crystallized vision of here's a product, here's a market, here's revenue to kind of cap uh, that uh, hype if you would like. Now, Mohammed, the budget comes up next Tuesday. I'm, I'm hearing there's, there's a possibility of an investment allowance. Uh, a, uh, would you guys benefit if there was a substantial investment allowance, even possibly where you, you can get a, a rebate bigger than your actual outlay? That's what the Business Council is, is asking for. Um, a, would that be something that you'd be a benefit to your company? And B, are you currently getting any support from government? I would welcome any support from government uh, to help companies like Archer in our development of these really truly unique technologies as we move forward. Um, we saw with our recent virtual delegation trip on a, you know, we were invited to a virtual mission uh, to uh, London Tech Week and by the British Consulate General. And we saw the phenomenal support that investors get uh, to really incentivize uh, investing in companies like Archer uh, and, and, you know, deep tech and technology companies because the government there in the UK saw that um, the road to recovery from the recession will be very much dependent on, you know, technological advances and capitalising on the opportunity that technology presents. So we do receive benefits from the government, the R&D uh, tax incentive, um, and, and we would welcome... Uh, you know, any other support that the government would provide. Okay. Before we wrap up, is there anything mm. out there, like, for example, I, I presume, Mohammed, you've got some normal people in your, your life, like your family and whatever. Mm. When, they have, when they say to you, what do you do at Archer? What do you say? I say we're building technology that can make a very, very big difference in the world, not just now, but in the generations to come. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us on the program. Norris, thanks for having me. That's the show. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll be talking about, I guess, all the stuff post-budget. We'll look around for those people who are benefiting the most from the largesse and charity of Josh Frydenberg. Quentin time! Quentin time!